Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. Um, <clears throat> last week, I said that the one thing that they teach you in hermeneutics and homiletics classes in seminary is never give a disclaimer before a message. So you're never supposed to do it two weeks in a row. Um, I know that not everybody um, shares my overwhelming passion for the Christmas season. And, and I, I don't want to thrust that upon you. I, I just want to maybe, if you're somebody that's not a big Christmas guy and, and you like to point out that we don't even know that Jesus was born on December 25th and, you know, those bah humbugs, I'm sure there's a few of you around here. Um, if you're one of them, I would just like to encourage you to maybe think a little bit differently. And... Um, I might actually use this passage on Christmas Eve because I was so taken back by it. Acts 17, Paul's walking through and he sees this idol called the idol to the unknown God. And he, um, he says, this thing that you're worshiping in ignorance, we're telling you, I'm going to say that this points to Jesus. And let me tell you about how Jesus is really what you should be worshiping. And I thought in the very least, we live in a privileged time where there are reminders like these all around that we could say, hey, that thing that you worship in ignorance, let me tell you about the beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if Paul could do that in a completely pagan time in Acts 17 to the Thessalonians um, or the Athenians, we could certainly be able to do that in the midst of this Christmas season. So I, I don't believe in Christmas spirit, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit uses Christmas to call people to himself. And um, if that's too much to wrap your arm, your head around, then you're probably a grump. Um, so anyway, um, welcome to our Redeemer Advent series for 2018. Today marks the beginning of a very special tradition that we hope to see grow and expand over the years. And tradition can either be an empty term, depending on how you use it, when tradition becomes tradition for the sake of tradition, then it's negative. But when traditions become a tool to collectively pull our hearts together towards Christ, they can really become quite beautiful and worshipful. And one advantage to planting a new church and starting a new regional network of churches is we get to start new traditions. So one of the traditions actually begins today. Each Advent and Lenten season, um, we're going to have all Redeemer churches doing the same series, same scripture, same sermons, same scripture readings, so that we can really be celebrating this Advent season together as one Redeemer family. And we're truly excited for the start of this new um, Christmas tradition over in Redeemer Point Pleasant right now. They're starting this same series, and we pray that it brings our hearts together for worship. And we pray that years from now, there's a dozen Redeemer fellowships up and down the Jersey Shore participating in this tradition. So a little history on our series. The Advent Conspiracy started a little over 10 years ago when a group of pastors came together and they kind of collectively realized that this season that should be filled with wonder and joy was often filled with stress and with obligation and with debt. And rather than embracing this season as a time to celebrate and be filled anew with wonderment at our Savior, it began to be seen as something to endure or something to get on the other side 
of. And I, I hear that often. You know, we'll talk when we get on the other side of the holidays. Like, um, it's something to just grit your teeth and get through. So they started with this small, simple idea. What if we committed as a small group of, it was just a handful of churches, to not allow it to be like that? And there's no rule that says that Christmas has to stink. Um, Or that it has to be seen as something to endure. We can enjoy this season together and through it have a deeper, collective, more meaningful enjoyment of our Savior together. And something really cool happened. Other churches were like, wow, this idea is kind of cool. Do you mind if we participate in this with you guys? Seems like the experience of stress and obligation and just trying to endure the holidays was more common than it should be. But the good news is that this desire to see it be something deeper than that, something more meaningful, something beautiful and to be enjoyed was a sentiment that was also growing and becoming more common. So with that, the Advent Conspiracy was born. And it's kind of a clever title because it it, it has two different meanings, depending on how you interpret it. The first part was rooted in what it is that we're actually celebrating, that God sent his special rescue agent into the world on a special rescue mission in the most common of ways, right under the noses of those who would oppose his secret rescue mission. So this special agent came to earth lowly and mild and lived a humble and sinless life. And when those who opposed him thought that they had triumphed over him was actually the greatest moment of his triumph and victory. And the conspiracy began on Christmas morning in a lowly manger. So that's the theological roots of the term Advent conspiracy. The second meaning was to just take some simple concepts or ideas or themes and to use creativity to kind of come together and conspire to make this season what it was originally supposed to be and reclaim it from all the crud that encrusted it and to show that underneath all of that rust, there was still something that had luster and beauty underneath all of it. Um, So it was the simple idea of just not simply enduring the season, but to actually say no to the simple things that kind of drive that thinking and say yes to making this a time of worship. So they came up with four simple reminders, and these reminders are being preached at thousands of churches around the world right now. Worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. But they also gave out all sorts of cool devotional resources. We have some of those in your bulletin. I started using that. It's just a couple of verses that will follow along. If you read for the next 25 days, it'll walk you through some of the prophecies, some of the scriptures of the birth narrative, and you'll be able to actually have a neat little devotional to use. If you're somebody that's like, hey, I've always wanted to do devotions with my kids, but I don't know where to start. It would be a nice, simple place to start. It's like five or six verses that you would be able to read together and be able to explain. Um, and one last thing before, before we dig in that I want to mention. Um, they've given the latitude to be creative on how we communicate those four truths to the body. Rather than kind of just give the same pre-packaged curriculum, they give 
latitude to be creative as we conspire together. So we've chosen 2 Corinthians 8, 9 as the theme verse that we're going to use to teach all four principles. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And as we considered this passage, we saw four truths clearly in that one verse. It speaks of the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and his riches and leaving those riches and coming down to earth to become poor so that in doing so, he would be able to give all and love all and call a raging bunch of sinners to be able to worship the most holy father through the gift of the sacrifice of the son. So the first message in this series, Worship Fully, I want to take a look at two people in the Christmas story who worship fully even though they didn't understand the full story. And if you have no clue what that means, don't worry because I'm going to explain it. So our text has two fascinating people. If you want to turn to Luke 2, it's also going to be projected up behind me. And if it's too dark out there in vampire land out there to follow along, you could just read back here. Um, I wanted the Christmas lights to be on. They're pretty, so that's why there's no lights on today. So our text says these two fascinating people who devoted their lives together to, to worship the one true God. And when they were approaching old age and it had little to go on other than a promise that was made to them decades earlier when they were still very, very young. So first we have this man named Simeon. Look with me at verses 22 through 26. Of chapter 2. It says, When they came for the time of the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it was revealed to him that he, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So first, we have this man, Simeon, that it's talked about in verses 25 and 26. And verse 26 tells us that he received a special promise from God's Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had an opportunity to be able to see God's long-awaited Messiah. And verse 25 tells us that this man, Simeon, was a righteous man. He was a devout man. And it also tells us that he was waiting for what it refers to here as the consolation of Israel, which means he was awaiting the divine conspiracy. Any of you PLI guys, you've read the divine conspiracy, you know where I'm going with this. Um, when a king would come from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, and he would rule the people from Jerusalem. And even though this nation was small, even seemingly insignificant in the eyes of the world, I've shared this with you before, but if you've never heard it, Israel, even though it's the center where almost all of the Bible took place, the center where if you turn on the news and watch for more than 10 minutes, you're guaranteed to hear something about Israel. Do you know that it's almost the exact same square mileage as New Jersey? 
So a place that small, that insignificant in the eyes of the world, that there would be a king that would be greater than all of the kings of the earth that would come from out of there. And he would lead this kingdom that would be greater than all of the kingdoms of the earth. So I want you to just think about that for a moment, this prophecy that was made and that he was banking on. And this was in the middle of the height of the Roman Empire, and he was believing that this dysfunctional little country that was held captive to the Roman Empire was someday going to be the most powerful nation in the world. And the indication is from these verses that this man would continue to come to the temple day after day and worship. And then you get the indication from verse 29 that he's probably pretty old by now. He says, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. That's not something that a young man is going to be saying. So he had continued to show up daily in this expectation and worship of something that he is yet to receive. And now days had turned into years and years had turned into decades. And though I'm sure he had seen glimpses of God at work over the course of his lifetime, he continued to come faithfully day after day with little to go off of other than a promise that was made to him way back in his youth. More on that later. And then we have this woman named Anna. Look at verses 36 and 37. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineo, the tribe of Asher. She would advance the years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. So this woman, who I think Anna is one of the coolest women in the Bible. I absolutely love the story uh, of Anna. I don't think there's been a Christmas that's gone by that I haven't found a way to fit her into the whatever series that I'm doing. But she became a widow at a very young age. She lost her husband seven years into marriage. And remember, people were married very, very young back then. They were almost always married in their teenagers. By the time you had reached like the ripe old age of like 17, you were an old maid back then. And um, since this time of losing her husband, she showed up to the temple daily, worshiping and fasting and praying. And now she's 84 years old. And most commentators say that it was likely around 50 or 60 years that she had been showing up to the temple in this way daily to worship. Even when she had less to go on than Simeon. She never received the promise that it said that Simeon was given. So her faith was in the promise of the coming of the Messiah as foretold from the Old Testament Scriptures. And she continued to just go off of that and get out of bed and come to the temple and worship daily. And just like Simeon, days had turned into months, had turned into years, had turned into decades. So they both continued to worship in faith going many decades without receiving the promise that God would ultimately deliver, but trusting that he would deliver on his promise. So I bring them up as the examples of this idea of worship fully, partially because of the precious examples they are of people who just truly worshipped. 
As I've read through Simeon's unfading belief in a promise from his youth that had not yet come to fruition, I'm encouraged and I'm spurred on in my faith and worship. As I read about Anna losing her husband at a young age and refusing for her identity to become that of victim and instead for her identity to be that of worshiper of the one true God, I'm challenged by that. As I read about her determination to pray and fast, even though she had gone decades without seeing answers to those prayers, I'm encouraged to persevere in prayer for things that I still await the answer to that feel as if they're hopeless. And man, is this one of those times a year where those things are thrown in front of you? I'll bet you, I don't want to show hands, but how many of you have that family member where you're just praying year after year, God, save Uncle Bill before I have to listen to him on Christmas yet again. And... um, and it feels like it's almost hopeless, right? And you keep praying the same thing over and over. And this is just a determination to just be unyielding and unwavering in your commitment to pray. But it also bring this up as an idea of an example of worship fully because for many years, they were not able to worship fully. At least not in the way that we understand the idea of worship fully today. They didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them the way that you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ do today. They didn't have, they've never seen the Christ up to this point. They know nothing of the love that would be poured out through Christ's atoning death on the cross. They don't have the New Testament. They don't have the church. They don't have the many, many answers to prophecy to go on. So they worship with such intensity, even though they're worshiping a shadow and an incomplete picture of what was to come through Jesus Christ. And it made me ask myself, and I want to encourage you to think through this, would I have the same determination and still have the same faith to continue and worship with the same consistency if I had waited that long and still not received what I was waiting for. And trust me, I'm not asking this to condemn anybody. I don't want to condemn myself by asking this. But this isn't rhetorical. When I asked myself that question, would I be able to persevere for decades like they did? Without seeing the answers for what I was persevering for, would I still be able to persevere? I didn't know the answer to that question. It wasn't easy. As I thought about situations like the Israelites, who their backs were against the wall, and all of a sudden God takes an ocean and splits it in half, has two massive walls of water. They walk across on dry land, and seemingly as soon as they're on the other side, their very first opportunity they get, they're like, God who? I was like, man, I think I identify more with that than I identify with Simeon and Anna, if if I'm honest. And I thought of times where God did things like have people just show up and drop off hundreds of dollars of diapers on my front Um, steps when Marcy and I were young and broke and just starting in ministry or when he redeemed my life out of the midst of the pits of a horrible drug addiction or or when he turned our little core group of believers into this beautiful thing that you see today And, and there's another church now over in Point Pleasant and all of your lives have been woven in such intricate ways to be here today so I've thought about 
all of the beautiful things that he's done to give me every reason to be able to trust his promise even more than Simeon and Anna were able to. And then I thought where I've struggled with doubt in between those mountaintops of faith experiences. And it made me at least wonder and reflect and seek my heart to be able to just be honest as I contemplated whether I would be able to keep my eyes on the prize while waiting so, so, so long like Simeon and Anna. I'd hope that I'd have the same determination and that I would have the same consistency. God has certainly given me every reason to. Has God given you every reason to? have that same faith and that same consistency? Well, what do you think as you contemplate the question, as you think through the various seasons where God has made you wait so long that he's made it really uncomfortable? Where you're like, man, there is way too much month left at the end of the money. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, I've been waiting for Mr. Right to come into my life forever and I'm seeing all my friends married off and it just still doesn't seem to happen or or I've been waiting for this health issue that I've just been persevering and going to every specialist and I'm still feeling even worse and you're getting uncomfortable you're still able to just keep your eyes locked on the prize like Simeon and Anna but before I get into a message of go and be like Simeon and Anna I had another thought I thought about how their worship was really not all that different than all of the true worshipers that have worshipped for the majority of the history of the earth. Listen, this is not something about the age of of the earth. I I happen to be a young earth guy, but um, however old you think the earth is and however old you think humanity is, you cannot deny that people of faith living on this side of the cross have been on the planet for a lot less time than the people of faith living on the other side of the cross. I don't, I don't care if you believe that the earth is 5,827 years old or 60 billion years old. Just simple math shows you that our 2,000 years of being in a privileged generation of living since the cross of Jesus that there were people of faith long before that. We've had the benefit of knowing the Messiah came and he died and he rose again but we've only had the benefit of the Holy Spirit and the full canon of Scripture and all of those goodies for the last 2,000 years. Yet there have been people of faith waiting for the promise of the Messiah to come ever since that day in Genesis 3.15 when God told Adam that there was going to come a seed of the woman that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. We've been waiting for the Messiah ever since then. And for most of history, people have not had the advantage to worship fully because they had what the scriptures refer to as pictures or signs or prophecies or what the book of Hebrews refers to as shadows because they don't have what was available to us. So their picture of faithful worship reminded me of the end of the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11.39 says, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. For God's provided something better for us, that apart from us, all of those generations would not be made perfect. Think about what that verse is saying. It's saying, all those who worshipped, 
All those who were waiting for the promised Messiah worshipped in faith, but most of them never, ever got to see the object of their faith. And in some ways, we're working with a picture that was not complete or was not full as we look at this idea of fully worship. But God has provided you, Christian, in Tom's River in 2018. He's provided you with the full picture. The verse is saying that we have the chance to worship in full HD when at best the people that had gone before this time that we celebrate at the first advent worshipped with grainy old footage to be able to look at. And I began to realize something that almost all of Hebrews 11 was example after example of those who worshipped and are waiting to see something that the angels and the shepherds saw that first Christmas morning. I just had a couple of examples um, projected up behind me. We have the faith of Abel, who says, by faith, he offered a more sacrifice, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 11.4. By faith, Abraham went out to a city that he did not know because he was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. He was saying, I don't want the riches of Ur and the Chaldees. I'm looking for a city that I don't even know where I'm going, but I'm going to go. Or we have, by faith, Moses refused to endure the hardships of the people, uh, uh, refused to, let me actually read it, Endure the hardships of Israel rather than the riches of Egypt because he was awaiting for the true riches of a true kingdom. And all these were worshiping sincerely, but they were not able to do the simple title of the message that we have today. They were not able to worship fully because they were still looking forward to the fulfillment of a still yet shadowy promise that for many was still far off. And then I thought about how these two And this is where this gets so cool as I prepare to kind of bring this to a close. These two, Anna and Simeon, they did receive that promise. Look what it goes on to say about Simeon in verse 27. It says, And he came in the Spirit to the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have now seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all your peoples a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for the glory of the people Israel. Look what Luke says about Simeon. This one who he had told would not taste death until he saw the Messiah face to face met these two common people, Mary and Joseph, in the temple. And when he held their child, think about this. I I wept as I I thought about this this week, and it chokes me up now. As he held this child, he held the answer to everything he had ever been waiting for. He held the summation of all of human history, of all the prophecies, of the promise that had made to him when he was a boy, of all those times where the aches and the pains, regardless of them, he still got up and went to the temple and worshipped. He held the answer to that in his arms. And he knew that what he was holding was the object of all of those decades of faith. He knew that he was holding his Messiah, 
The one who spoke and the worlds came into existence as a newborn infant. And verse 29, he says, it's enough. I've already received everything that I could ever hope for in this life. Go ahead and take me home, Jesus. It's like the old hymn. I was listening to this this, uh, this week. Any day now, any day now, I shall be released. He's saying, go ahead and release me. I'm ready. I've worshipped fully. And now I want to go see this in technicolor on the other side. Then look at Anna. Look at verse 38. It says, And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who were waiting the redemption of Jerusalem. Oh, man. So this woman who had been coming up to the temple for decades and decades and decades and praying and fasting and worshiping was now worshiping fully. And I had this magnificent thought. Think about this. See if you can, by imagination, be able to have the visual that's in my brain, which I'll never tell you to do that again, I promise. But um, Anna and Simeon served as sort of the tipping point of the entire history of worship for all of mankind. At one moment, they're worshiping in faith and in trust for a God that is going to show them the object of their faith. And in the next moment, they're holding the creator of their faith in their arms. And they're worshiping fully. Amen? Is that awesome to anybody? They had, worship, they had a worship experience that was essentially unlike no other worship experience that anybody else will ever experience in all of history. In one moment, they're worshiping in anticipation for something to happen. And in the next moment, there's no more anticipation because they're holding that little bundle of anticipation in their arms, worshiping with a fullness that previously they could have only dreamt of. But my thoughts didn't stay on Simeon and Anna, and it didn't stay on Hebrews 11, because this isn't really a story about Simeon and Anna. It's not really about the faith of Abraham. It's not really about the faith of Moses. You can't have Hebrews chapter 11 without Hebrews chapter 12. So just like Simeon and Anna's worship was not truly complete without the completion of Christ being brought into that worship equation, look with me at Hebrews 12 one through three. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great of a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The reason that we can worship fully is because Christ has worshipped fully. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus completed the mission and said, mission accomplished. And now he has given you the ability to worship fully. So think about this. And just consider some of what we have at our disposal as Christians living with a full view of the cross that Anna and Simeon did not have at their disposal. We have a full understanding 
of how the prophecies of the first advent of the Messiah were fulfilled by the first advent of Christ. John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the greatest man ever born of a woman, didn't even possess that. And you have that sitting right here in Tom's River here today. We have the testimony of Christ's perfect life. Simeon and Anna only observed him as an infant. They didn't have that to be able to go on. We have the full story contained in the full Word of God. And most of us even have it available on cell phones and iPads and Kindles and any kind of advice with bells and whistles that you can imagine. None of the people that we've mentioned so far had the benefit of having a full Bible. We have the apostles explain to us how all of these things through history were fulfilled through Jesus Christ that they had been waiting for. They didn't have the benefit of that. We have the benefit of knowing what Jesus did for us on the cross. Think about this. Jesus met this Messiah not knowing anything about His passion, not knowing anything about the cross, not knowing anything about the resurrection. Just holding Him as a baby was enough to say, take me now. I'm ready to be out of here. I've worshipped fully. It's complete. We have the benefit of being a part of this mystery known as the church where we get to be a part of Christ's body according to scriptures. So in other words, you are free to worship freely and with privilege a full view of the whole picture. What an honor to live in such a time as this. You know, people use this time to take pot shots at consumerism, and you could take shots at consumerism and Christmas all you want, but we get the privilege of living in a time and place and nation where we're surrounded every single year by pictures of our Savior's birth. Go to Saudi Arabia or Yemen or southern Sudan and see if you have that same privilege or honor. What an honor to live in such a time as this. Every once in a while, I meet a curmudgeonly crusty old Calvinist that points out the worldliness of the Christmas season, and they like to do silly things like bust on Christmas trees because they have nothing else to do besides they should just shut their computer and knock it off. But every once in a while, I get to meet one of those people, and before I run away screaming, um, I'd like to share a thought with them. The, the, the thought that people who call themselves Calvinists, first of all, if, if you're into Reformed doctrine, Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't mean that you worship the writings of John Calvin. It just means that you think that he was a helpful, helpful author who wrote about Scripture and doctrine in a way that was helpful and held a high view of God. But when I meet those humbugs who call themselves Calvinists, I can't help but think, do you even understand the writings of John Calvin? Because one of his main theological beliefs was that the church should be able to take all truth, reclaim it, own it, point it to Christ, and now make it God's truth. And we should be in the business of reclaiming and recycling all truth, showing how all truth is an opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So if we have a time of year where I can walk into the dens of American consumerism and be surrounded by reminders of the birth of my Savior, then I'm going to take those opportunities to worship fully. Amen? And I get so floored by people who would argue against this and say something just so moronic 
as, do you really think that the decorating company at Macy's had our Lord in mind when they put up all that joy to the world and nativity stuff around their store? Do you really think that they had the gospel in mind when they made their Christmas playlist? I don't care! My job is to worship freely. I can scream up here until I turn blue in the face. I have. I'm doing it right now. And I can't make you worship fully. But man, I can stop and say, even if that person put those things up because they want to make me go buy their silly perfume at the counter, I'm just going to pause and reflect on my Savior. Boy, is Jesus awesome. And maybe... Just maybe, if folks like that spent more time looking at their own hearts rather than judging other people's hearts and fully worshiping rather than thinking that they're supposed to tell other people how to worship, they would know a little bit of the joy that Simeon and Anna expressed in this passage. And we're not even at the passage in Matthew 2.11 yet where it says that the shepherds saw him and they rejoiced with great rejoicing and in their great rejoicing, they kept rejoicing in their joy. I mean, the Greek is just awesome. And that maybe if they just looked at their own hearts more than thinking they were supposed to be the police of everybody else's, they would know something of that joy as they worship freely. So as we close, as much as I love the story of Simeon and Anna, the encouragement here is not to go be a bunch of little Simeon and Annas. As outstanding as they are, They only had a fuzzy little copy of the picture. You've been given everything that you need in Christ to worship fully. So the first message, the first application, the first part of the conspiracy is worship fully this Advent season. Do not look at the season as something to get through. Don't look at life as something to get through. You could take that message and and be relevant all times of the year. Do not view it through the lenses of obligation because I'm going to tell you obligatory relationships is the enemy of worship and true fellowship. And do not look at it look at it I'll tell you how you do look at it as an opportunity to worship fully. So some application questions to help prepare your heart for this Advent season as we close. Have you ever patiently had to wait for something and when you received it, it had just such great sweetness because you had to patiently wait for it? I think of just what Simeon and Anna must have thought. Like, God could have easily just said, like, you know what, here at the age of 26, go ahead, go ahead and take it because we're going to have millennials someday that will realize that, um, you know, you can't possibly receive anything after the age of 26 and enjoy it. So go ahead and take it now. Or... Was it that possibly day after day after day of cultivating that patience that that worship was that much sweeter when they received that Christ? Have you ever received the promises of the gift of God in miraculous ways in the past but find yourself growing impatient with him on something that you're awaiting for in the present? Real question. You've seen him just do miraculous things, show up in miraculous ways time after time after time but you're having difficulty in trusting him with something that he's presently has you faced with. Have you fallen into seeing relationships and opportunities that surround this season as obligatory? If you release that feeling of obligation, would you be free to worship as you leave here today? 
Have you considered the tremendous opportunities available to you as a Christian living on this side of the cross who gets to know the full story of Jesus? And are you able to slow down, even if you haven't yet, are you able to slow down? So I started with this message, even in this moment, and take the opportunity to join the true church around the world and worship fully this Advent season. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that we get to see you in technicolor. Lord, that we have the full picture of the glory of our Savior. Lord, thank you that we, we get opportunities every day this month to stop whenever we want and be able to say, wow, that makes me think of my Jesus. And we take those opportunities and worship fully. In Jesus' name, amen.